Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe people. My name is Aiden Wilson, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I'm a student at Lisker Collegiate in Ottawa, and I am the co-founder of the Republic of Childhood. Today, we continue our Republic of Childhood season with a conversation about student activism and how we can reimagine emancipatory possibilities for schooling with educator Vichy Shaw and student activist Alexis Benz. Special thanks to the Ottawa Community Foundation and the TELUS Friendly Future Foundation for supporting our virtual Republic programming. We begin with Dr. Vijaya Shah in a conversation with Neil Wilson on what needs to change in our institutions to make our lives and society more equitable and inclusive. Dr. Vijaya Shah is an educator, scholar, and activist committed to equity and racial justice in the service of liberatory education. She's an assistant professor at the Faculty of Education at York University and her research explores anti-racist and decolonizing approaches to leadership in schools, communities, and school districts. She also explores educational barriers to the success and well-being of Black, Indigenous, and racialized students. Dr. Shaw teaches in the Master of Leadership and Community Engagement, as well as undergraduate and graduate-level courses in education. She has worked in the Model Schools for Inner Cities program in the Toronto District School Board and was an elementary classroom teacher in the same school board. Dr. Shaw is committed to bridging the gaps between communities, classrooms, school districts and the academy to reimagine emancipatory possibilities for schooling. Uh, Welcome, Vidya. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. Uh, In a recent article published uh, on October 21st called Opportunism or Opportunity, you write, many families and communities on these lands have been living through another pandemic that we have yet to name as a society. Now, of course, the COVID uh, pandemic is less than a year old, and then you refer to white supremacy and settler colonialism as a pandemic that are hundreds of years old, and you ask, why haven't we seen these oppressive structures as a global crisis? Yeah, you know, this question to me really speaks to something that is so prevalent in in schooling, and it's the myth of neutrality. It's this idea that we all sort of see and experience and read the world in the same way and that we're all read by the world and responded to in the world in the same way. And that's simply not true. And so I think about the fact that, you know, we haven't seen white supremacy and settler colonialism as crises, as pandemics, as massive systems of oppression that need uh, a collective effort to overhaul. And in large part, it's because of who gets to define the problem, who gets to define the crisis. Who gets to define when the crisis is big enough to demand uh, collective action? We know that in these times, COVID-19 has has impacted everyone. It impacts how we live. It impacts, you know, possibilities for our futures. It impacts our choices. And yet it has impacted everyone differently. And so I think about, you know, for for, for people, for so for individuals, for families, for communities with greater uh, social capital, with greater power and privilege, there has been a real disruption to the safety and comfort and protection that these levels of power and privilege afford. And so people have had to make alternate arrangements for, for, for living. Uh, people have had to work from home and, and take care of children or um, elderly parents at the same time sort of trips and and leisure activities have been drastically reduced or altered. And so life has changed for all of us. And for those with greater power and privilege, this level of disruption and sort of the forced uh, pause of COVID-19, especially um, in, in in the spring and early summer months, has provided an opening for some people, for some people, not all people, <laughs> um, to look around, to see what they have, you know, what they what they have chosen not to see before, to care about the plight and well-being of others, um, and to recognize that our health and our well-being 
uh, are intimately connected to one another. That we, you know, one of the things that COVID-19 has done is it's really helped us understand uh, interconnectedness, that we, we cannot be well if folks in our uh, surroundings, in our society, in our country, in our nation, in our world are not well. And I think for far too long, people and families with greater power and privilege in society have been content with living very, you know, disconnected individual lives in sort of a, a protective bubble that is separate from so much of um, the city, so much of the province, so much of the world. Um, and that way of living and being in the world is simply not sustainable. And it's and, and it's also not just that it's not sustainable, but it's it's the very root of oppression. Mm-hmm. So in this article, you know, I, I write that. Um, we are in this time of a of of a global pandemic and, and crisis, and it simply exacerbates inequities that have been long standing, that have existed for a long time. Um, and we know that COVID is not an equal opportunity or equal outcome virus. Mm. Well, um, given the fact, Vidya, that um, the pandemic has as you say, produced an opportunity to look more deeply at centuries old uh, embedded colonialism and racism. How do you see the last five months or do you see any um, movement uh, within the academy and within your work in the education systems? I'm thinking um, primarily of the public school system. Do you see um, educators, boards of education, the ministry, uh, taking this opportunity to re-examine and make the whole thing a little more equitable for the marginalized and racialized communities? Yeah, that's a great question, Neil. You know, I think that, I think that people have taken this up differently. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in addition to COVID, uh, there's also been the, you know, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, in the United States and here in Canada, the death of Regis Korchinski Paquette, Dondra Campbell, uh, Jamal Francique, Rodney Levy, Ajaz Chowdhury. And so we're seeing a massive uprising in racial awareness, in racial solidarity towards Black lives, in calls for defunding the police. Uh, and I, I think about the number of people, um, and in particular young people uh, that have marched, that have spoken, that have risked their lives to stand to stand for Black life, um, and in particular the Black Lives Matters movement internationally. But I also think about how long Black, Indigenous, and racialized people um, have been resisting, have been marching, have been engaging in strikes, have been writing, have been, you know, speaking. Um, and and how little has changed in that time. So when we look at this particular moment, there does feel like there is some type of a shift happening. And in part, it, it's because it feels like it's a global shift. And I have seen so many attempts of educators, um, of community organizations, of social movements and, and, and parents and families coming together in unprecedented ways to stand in solidarity for, for, for Black life. And it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, touching and inspiring time. And I think about it in the, in the academy. There are, there are shifts happening uh, around you know, calls for curriculum changes, uh, positionings that are, uh, positions that are opening up um, that are specifically focused on Black studies. Um, so we are seeing these moments um, of, of, of opening. And yet at the same time, as I was saying earlier, we've seen these moments before. And so there's a part of me that is, uh, that is hopeful in these times, but there's another part of me that is deeply skeptical and deeply critical of the ways that it's playing out right now. You know, we see lots of organizations and school boards engaging in very performative tactics. Um, the, you know, the, the public statement, the tweet, the one-off diversity training, uh, you know, just starting to name anti-racism or anti-Black racism. You know, we're seeing these, these movements and it's, 
for many of the organizations, it's about saving face. It's about not being that organization that's not going to talk about racial justice in this moment. But it's not actually about changing the structures and the policies and the systems that need to change in order for us to not have to have this conversation in five years or 10 years or 50 years. Um, and so it, it really depends. It depends on who is engaging this work and why. Um, and I think, I think we can really take our lead from community, from families that risk their lives every day to send their children to school. And I think about the educators that are in particular schools uh, that are also risking their uh, professional careers to say what needs to be said, to break the silences, to ask the questions, to disrupt the normal ways of uh, navigating school systems that are deeply rooted in white supremacist and settler colonial logics. Yes, uh, Vidya, I, I hear you and uh, you're certainly on the front lines and um, our Republic of, of Childhood, of course, is in the schools engaging uh, young people to express themselves through writing and uh, conversations with authors and uh, uh, youth activists. It seems um, part of the youth activist movement um, is calling themselves students for the revolution. And, you know, this is pretty radical um, from my perspective in the sense that they are saying that we can't handle these uh, various crises by, you know, separating them into manageable bites the climate crisis, the racialized um, crisis in education, and uh, you know the way we've been treating indigenous peoples, um, we need to somehow lump all this together. And I don't know. It, you know, some people are are literally calling for a revolution. Certainly not a violent revolution, but I think. Many people have seen this happen um, over and over again for hundreds of years that power becomes uh, fossilized, that power no longer serves the, the majority, but it continues to maintain the status quo at the expense of the well-being of the vast, vast majority, and we've seen how this pandemic legally and with the cooperation of the system has produced more billionaires and has enriched the coffers of people holding the levers of power at the expense of, you know, the people, the students, the teachers, the frontline workers. So I guess we need patience, although <laughs> it seems to be in short supply sometimes. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I think, I mean, I think even that notions of that, that notion of needing patience is, again, a very situated response. Mm. When I when I think about if we're if we're asking if we're asking populations of people who have been patient for hundreds of years to to be patient now. Um, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's unfair, you know, and I, it's, I think to the, the more important question is why haven't we been more urgent? Why haven't we been more revolutionary in our response? Why haven't we been more uh, disruptive in our response? And this is where, you know, from, from, from the position of, you know, having to tell your story again and again and again, and for people to not want to listen to it, for people to intentionally hide those stories, for people to intentionally dismiss them as, as, as opinion over fact, um, or that's just one experience as opposed to the experience of many. When these tactics get used again and again to silence, um, the demands for change 
at what point is it deeply unfair to ask people to continue to be patient? And at what point is it deeply unethical for people who have benefited from the status quo to not be more urgent in their, in their work, in their fight for justice? You know, it is, these times again have for many people um, ripped the Band-Aid off of what in Canada we have tried really hard to do, which is to put niceties and politeness and, you know, goodwill and good intentions and, uh, you know, charitable approaches to the world. We've, we've had, those approaches have masked the massive power imbalances that are at the root of so, you know, every institution, every government decision. Um, and we, we, we simply can't allow that anymore. It, we, we can't allow for our conversations to not be rooted in and, and, and centered on the ways in which power constructs particular groups of people, in which power silences particular stories, in which power dismisses particular versions of history, in which power, you know, um, completely erases uh, particular forms of curriculum from, well, from, from schooling practices. It is a time where a revolution is needed. And I love that, you know, young people and activists are seeing the interconnectedness of not only our oppression, but our way out of oppression, that we can't actually address climate justice without addressing settler colonialism and racial injustice and capitalism. We can't address racial inequities in schooling without also thinking about the ways in which race and capitalism, uh, racism and capitalism are deeply intertwined. And so this call for a revolution is exactly what is needed right now. And it is in fact long overdue. And this is the energy and the, 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 the strength and the wisdom of young people right now. And you know, it, on the one hand, I think about how excited I am with the idea of young people leading. And on the other hand, I think about how devastating that is because we have left the world in, in, in quite, you know, in, in shambles. And in many ways, young people are being left to pick up the pieces, which is so unfair. Well, I th think, um, Vidya, that through your work and others, in the academy, the conversation, the narrative seems to be widening, at least, if not changing, it's broadening. Now, for, uh, for instance, we can talk about resisting the traditional schooling discourses and, um, you know, consider, and also certainly in the Ottawa uh, Catholic and Ottawa Carleton District School Boards, um, marginalized ways of knowledge are being legitimized slowly but surely. So there is hope. Um, and I think if we look at the, the revolutions, certainly I'm an old timer and I remember, <clears throat> you know, 68, which was an international revolution uh, that practically every country um, on earth was involved in the, uh, the students were out in all the cities, major cities, trying to overthrow the system. And even though it was considered in, in many circles as a failure because the, the students, the young people, the, the socialists, if you will, the radicals didn't uh, take power, we can see that there have been, I'm, I'm thinking of women's liberation and feminism and some of the social justice movements um, and the war in Vietnam that, that when movements do break out, if you will, um, they do have um, maybe more subtler impacts, but long lasting and deep impacts. Yeah, uh, you know, I, 
I agree. I think, I think, um, I think we're always uh, evolving as a collective. Um, and that looks different at different times. And that is, uh, you know, it, it does take, it does take time for these, these systems to change. And yet um, it's because of the, it's because of the urgency uh, of social movements and people that are, you know, on the ground, standing on the front lines, um, striking, you know, it's, it's because of, of that urgency that this longer, slower change is possible. And so I think that both are needed. You know, I think that... Mm. Uh, Vidya, how would you um, dis- make the distinction between education and schooling? Yeah. You know, I think education to me is something that is extremely broad. Education happens everywhere. It happens, you know, in in the kitchen when when a parent is teaching a child how to how to bake cookies. It happens uh, when you're walking in a forest. It happens on the streets. It happens on uh, you know in classrooms. Obviously, it happens at recess, um, and it is a way of engaging with the world that is one of curiosity and inquiry and relationality. So to me, education is much broader than how it is conceived of in in a traditional school setting. Uh, In a traditional school setting there, you know, it's often run by, um, you know, what what is sort of connected to white uh, white supremacist and settler colonial logics is the neoliberal logic that schooling uh, the purpose of schooling is to prepare students for the workforce. Um, it's to make sure that we are globally competitive as a country. It's to make sure that um, you know we kind of take our rightful place in the in the in the in the economic context of the world. And our edu- and so education systems, if if that is the purpose of education systems, then then what happens in classrooms and curriculum and decisions is that it becomes one of competition. It becomes one of very narrow definitions of what constitutes language or mathematics. We see sort of the arts and um, you know, other forms of, of curriculum that are not deemed essential for uh, workplace um, skills, moved to the side, deemed less important. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that, you know, testing, massive standardized testing. Um, we judge students based on these, uh, you know, on, on grades. I think grading is a, is a very archaic form of, um, of, of learning. And so much of what schooling does as a, as, a, as a system is that it engages in the social reproduction of society. And so that social reproduction will have haves and have-nots or winners and losers. It'll have folks that have access to higher order thinking and creativity and innovation in their ways of thinking and, and folks who won't. And we see that as it plays out. You know, we see many examples of, um, you know, uh, especially for demographics of, um, you know, highly racialized and in particular black and indigenous uh, students and in particular students marginalized by poverty, we see in those parts of, of, uh, of the cities, a higher concentration of pedagogy that is de-skilled, that is lower level, that uh, is you know, rote in, in many ways and doesn't engage in that higher order critical thinking um, that you will see in other parts of the city with this greater power and privilege. And so, this is these. That is what schooling is. So schooling is a is a mechanism in many ways to reproduce the injustices that we see in the world. And many would argue that it's also a site of struggle and resistance. So you'll see in many ways families and stu- and, and and students and communities sort of pushing back against those oppressive structures and and looking for. Um, 
you know, ways to sort of make meaning of who they are and the system and to shape and mold the system in particular ways. Um, and I would say that schooling is a very, very, very narrow version of what education can be. Why do you think it is, uh, Vidya, that for the most part, I, I, I think and I know for a fact in Ottawa and in Toronto and in, in other parts of the world, other countries have progressive curricula and teachers, but generally the system itself hasn't changed in you know, a couple of hundred years, perhaps. And we still, for the most part, don't consult the kids, the students in the school system. We're, we, when, we, when you think about it, it's, it's so bizarre, it's ironic, it's, it's, it's counterproductive to not include what children want, see, or hope for within the system. So as we begin to imagining, uh, you know, future possibilities, what, what do you think are the most important requirements for us moving forward? You know, I think part of it is what you said, Neil, about genuinely valuing students as integral to the learning process and, and their their views and their opinions and their experiences as central to this. And I think in part that means that as educators, um, we have to really understand uh, the complexity of, of, of identity, um, of power, of the ways that those things intersect with each other because there are some students who are listened to in the education system again and again and again. And in fact, many would argue that the education system is set up for um, the white middle-class male able-bodied Christian student. And so there are, there are some students that, that have much more voice um, and a, a much greater ability to use their voice in a way that will support and promote them instead of harm and um, endanger them in the schooling system. And so part of one of the conditions that's necessary is that we really need as educators to understand the ways in which identity is, is constructed, the ways in which blackness is associated with deviance and criminality, the ways in which indigeneity is associated with backwardsness and you know, uh, lacking, lacking civility, the ways in which to us LGBTQ identities are positioned as abnormal, the ways in which Muslim identities are positioned as terrorists. We need to understand what our students are grappling with on a, on a, on a daily basis, the ways in which their identities inform who they are and how they are and how they can be in the world. So I think that's a necessary component. I think another necessary component is that as educators, you know, we, it, this is a, this is a profession that demands a level of humanity, a level of connection to ourselves as human beings. And oftentimes with the structures and the demands on teachers, uh, the job can become uh, quite, bureaucra quite bureaucratic. And the ability to sort of connect inward and to, to self-reflect and to engage with those parts of ourselves that are um, so central to how we can create those kinds of spaces for students to show up in those ways. If we don't have the opportunity mm -hmm. as teachers to do that, how are we possibly gonna be able to create spaces for students where their, their multiple selves can show up, you know? Um, and I've, I've written about this before. I've written that, you know, teaching for me has become a, a journey of self-discovery, self an encounter with the self. That education is ultimately an endeavor in being more human. And it demands of us an ongoing commitment to living and working from our, con our complex and often contradictory parts, the magical parts, the scared parts, the joyful parts, the engaged parts, the ignorant parts, and the resistant parts. Mm. If we Yes, I, I know that um, many students, maybe the more progressive in the student body, are 
taking it upon themselves, they are in fact reading, reaching out, forming uh, communities of, uh, if you will, co-constructing knowledges. They're not being sucked in by the, you know, the old colonial narrative. So <clears throat> it's almost like now we have a two-tier system. We have the racialized indigenous uh, voices and um, some of the settler voices that are trying to move forward in a constructive way. They seem to be mobilizing in the communities and letting the school system uh, do its own thing, if you will. That's a really interesting. Uh, that's a really interesting comment, Neil. And you know, it it turns the notion of two tiered on its head because here it's it's young people creating the education that they want and need, mm. uh, and not simply being passive recipients to to the schooling that is not serving them. Uh, and I love that. I, I love the idea that see that to me is true is true voice and is true um, activation. I, for some reason, that word's coming to my mind right now. Mm. But it, it's, it, it's an activation of we are going to be and we are going to create the, the system that we want, regardless of whether or not the education system is gonna follow. And I think about you know all of the ways, as you've named, you know there are so many, sort of underground, sideways, backdoor forms of learning that are happening that don't get counted as learning, you know, from social media to, um, you know, climate activist, you know, uh, um, Fridays for Futures. You know, I think about all the ways in which young people are engaging and are demanding education on their terms in terms mm -hmm. of they need right now. And that is, that is something that is where as educators and as education systems, we need to humble ourselves. We need to close our mouths and open our ears and listen to, to what young people want. That to me is true education. When education comes from this internal, uh, you know, this internal sort of drive and, and, and want for something more, to make sense of the world, to have an impact on the world, to be in relationship with the world, that is education. And so one of the best things we can do right now as educators and education systems is to let youth lead us there, to let, to, 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 to create the space. And you know, in many ways we have created the space. It's been so unwelcoming and so unhospitable to so many students. <laughs> that we've created the conditions for for the revolution and for those of us that are willing to go there that are willing to relinquish um this fake power that we have to that, that are willing to listen and learn from young people um they will they will lead us where they need to go and they will lead us where we need to go frankly oh that's wonderful uh just perhaps to wrap up um you, in, in the section, um, Imagining Future Possibilities, you seem to see that um, or believe that a, the school without the home and without the community, uh, both the local community and the larger world community is really not really a school at all. That you need those three components to um, help transform and empower um, those voices that are often silenced. Yeah. You know, I think, I think in many knowledge systems, um, the individual doesn't exist outside of the family, the community, the larger society. And that is such a powerful way of thinking about um, what what schooling can can be and can become you know that it's not simply the student that we are teaching that student has a family oftentimes not always but that student has communities that they identify with that student is part of a much larger social construct and if we can engage with a more 
complete picture of who that student is, including all of these other factors, it changes, um, it changes not only like the magic that can happen in a classroom and the ways in which we can educate students not away from themselves, but towards themselves, um, but it also changes the possibilities for schooling at large. Mm. Because all of a sudden, it's not simply what happens in those four walls. It's a recognition that that school is located in a community that is already vibrant, that is already ticking, that already has all sorts of things happening in it. And it is not, it is not the center of that community. It is part of that community. And so we can, when we can break down the, the, the fake sort of barriers and walls between you know, what constitutes a school and what constitutes the community that it's in, such that we make it more porous, we make it more malleable, we make it more fluid, then we can, we can think about how multiple people from multiple positions can care collectively about the well-being of young people, how many ideas and many perspectives are necessary to, to really support the well-being of all young people. And I think it, it's, it has transformative possibilities. Oh, thank you so much, Vidya, uh, for your insights and for this paper. I, I know this will generate uh, in, in our communities um, and within our audience uh, a lot of uh, conversation. And uh, I hope you continue to lead the way in terms of uh, bringing us your research and showing us that there is uh, a way forward. So thank you so much for this conversation. Neil, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. That was Republic co-founder Neil Wilson in conversation with Fiji Shaw. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. And now, here's my conversation with student activist Alexis Benz. On today's episode, we're discussing youth activism and youth involvement in politics and social change. For years, our leaders have been aware of the devastation that the climate crisis will cause, and yet little to no concrete change has been made. Now, my generation is starting to speak up. All over the world, children and young people have been leading the charge at protests, fighting for progressive policies and real action. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my first guest, Alexis Benz. Alexis is a 14-year-old youth activist from Lindsay, Ontario, who has fought for climate action and an end to inequality. What was the specific moment where you knew you had to uh, go into activism and start fighting for social change? Well, I'd say it was when I was nine and I was going to an organization called Girls Inc. And everybody was using bottled water despite having clean tap water. And I argued that like it was not sustainable, it was unhealthy. And eventually, after researching and presenting my research to them, I convinced them to ban bottled water. Was it was it difficult getting started with activism, or did it just kind of happen automatically? I feel it's pretty difficult because I find most adults don't take children very seriously. And it was a little hard getting started, but once I got started, I find I found that I just couldn't stop. Uh, were you part of an organization uh, from the beginning, or were you working independently? I was working independently because I did not know a whole lot about the organizations out all over the world, so I stayed with my friends and we struck on our own. Now, you are, uh, in your activism, uh, vocally uh, anarcho-communist, which is a relatively... Uh, uh, this in the current political climate is a relatively uh, fringe belief. Has that made your work more difficult? Have you um, had sort of more pushback against what you've been doing because of that? I haven't had a whole lot of pushback because I find a lot of people that I work with feel the same way, but people who disagree with my beliefs, who I'm trying to educate, certainly have a much harder time taking me seriously when I say that I'm an anarcho-communist. 
how have you, uh, over the course of your uh, time doing activism, how have you combated uh, hopelessness in regards to the cli climate crisis? Well, I just have to think of all the amazing things that have been done in history, all the changes that have been made, and just hope in the future that we can keep making more of them, even if we have to make them a lot faster and a lot sooner. And how do you think we can manage to uh, make these changes faster and sooner than we ever have before? Uh, do you think it's possible? I think it's possible if the politicians take a step back and listen to the scientists and all the activists around the world that are fighting for their future. It's really up to them in the end what happens. How would you suggest uh, we as a populace can... Um, put pressure on or try and uh, incentivize politicians to, uh, to step back, as you said? I feel like they should take the time to speak with people like uh, Greta Thunberg and uh, Alexandra Villasenor in the U.S., all those young activists who have very good education. I feel they should take the time to speak with them take the social side and the scientific side of everything that they believe in. Have, uh, have you ever found yourself, uh, over the course of your uh, activism, have you ever found yourself uh, tempted to stop fighting or give up? Uh, and if so, what made you decide not to? Yeah, I've definitely been tempted to give up seeing all the comments made by uh, trolls on social media going directly against things that are morally right. It makes me lose hope in humanity sometimes, but then think of all the good people I'm surrounded by and how we do have the power to change if we keep fighting, and that that keeps me motivated. How would you sort of, um, do you, would you say you have sort of a, a perfect world or an end goal in mind that uh, you're fighting for, and if so, how do you picture that? I honestly don't have an end goal because I'm not really sure what to imagine or what changes will be made, but I'm just hoping that politicians will take the steps necessary to stop the climate crisis before it's too late. What, what steps do you think uh, people can personally take day-to-day uh, -to, -day to make change? Well, I know a lot of people say that turning off your lights or uh, using less water is going to help and that's true but it's very small and that's not the kind of change that we need. I feel when people put themselves out there and protest even if it's just online activism it makes a huge difference educating people and motivating others to go out and do change. Uh, if you could uh, for a moment talk about sort of uh... Uh, your experience as as a as a child in um, what is often largely regarded as uh, uh, I guess quote unquote an adult's field uh, fighting for change in society and if you could uh, uh, talk about how your uh, age has affected your activism. Well, I feel like I was shielded from a lot of the horrible things happening in the world by, uh, like, my parents, family, friends, because they, they didn't want to put that pressure on me. But I feel like I should have been introduced before and made change before, and I feel that kids, if they're educated on something from a young age, they'll be more inclined to take the steps necessary to try to make change, try to convince others, researching, activism, all that, that kind of thing. But it is a, it is a very sort of um, sensitive subject for a lot of people, and I've, I've talked to a lot of people uh, who have felt themselves just get worn down and uh, depressed by uh, thinking about all the uh, issues. So how do you fight against that? Well, it has certainly affected me in that way, thinking of all the good humanity could be doing and we're spending money on resources on, on things that perhaps aren't necessary. And 
yeah, it certain certainly wears people down. And I mean, I don't have any motto that keeps me going. I just think of my future and how that is what I'd like to have. Do you have Do you have any advice for people who uh, who might want to start fighting for social change a bit more, but uh, feel daunted by uh, by sort of the the size of what they what they'd have to um, overcome? Um, don't take on everything at once. If, if you want to take on environment, environmental issues, and then racial issues, um, gender issues all at once, I find it's, it drains you of all your energy. And I think you should focus on one fully or, uh, a lot of separate subjects, um, a little bit because, I mean, draining yourself of energy isn't going to help anyone. If you're focusing on something, even if it's small, trying to make it better, then that makes all the difference. So, um, finding finding uh, short-term goals and uh, fighting for those. Um, exactly. Do you have some examples uh, of uh, short-term goals that you've fought for, been fighting for, in that in that respect? Yeah, I started off just pick up litter at a park and then take take a week to research and think it through and then it slowly moves up from speeches at school to protests and those protests eventually get bigger and then talking to local politicians. You have to slowly work your way up there, not pressure yourself. And do you think when you when you do speeches at schools, uh, when you talk to politicians, uh, when you uh, go to protests, do you think that uh, makes makes a difference? I know that in the town I live in, it's a very conservative town. It hasn't made a huge difference, but it certainly changed the way people think, or forcing them to see a different perspective, and. Municipally, it has not made a difference, but I know that if I and my friends were to inspire people to go out and do things outside of the town I live in, then that will make a difference. How have your um, maybe less politically active friends or your parents or your school, uh, how, have, how have they uh, responded to your activism? Uh, everyone in my family or friend circle is fully supportive and they try to go out and do activism and uh, educate people but there are people of course around town and at school that um, tell us to go home that we're kids or they laugh at us that kind of thing uh what what would what you say your advice is for dealing with people like that if they're just saying it to try to get a reaction out of you, I would say ignore it because if you snap back at them, try to educate them, that's exactly what they want. They're very close-minded and I don't think they'll listen. But if it's someone who has a belief ingrained in their mind because that's what they've been taught, then I feel, I feel you should take the time to educate them because I've seen that happen in town and it works. How has how has sort of ideas of intersectionalism with racial issues and gender issues and environmental issues and class issues, uh, how have you been able to sort of meld them all together to at least a certain extent uh, in your activism? How have you been able to balance that as well as I think you have? For activism in town and actual physical protests, I've only focused on uh, environmentalism because that's what I'm most educated on. But on social media, if I see uh, an infographic or something important that should be shared about uh, gender equality or racial justice, uh, then I'll be sure to post about it. Um, educate people at school about it in my circle and just just try to overall spread the message that we need change on more than one thing. Do you feel that more uh, young people, more people uh, our age should be engaging with uh, politics or um, do you think that uh, it's 
the current sort of engagement is good? I think that normally society should not require this month this much political engagement from kids, but uh, past generations have allowed uh, laws and the earth to come to this, and I'm not trying to blame them because they probably weren't taught either, but politicians um, in the past decades, they haven't made really good decisions to help the earth. What do you think politicians uh, should be doing a bit more of uh, at this point? Well, I feel like they should be focusing on things that are argued for the most uh, instead of uh, putting up some windmills or putting in a conservation park for wildlife they should be banning uh, mass corporations like Nestle from draining lakes or uh, huge pipeline companies from destroying uh, First Nations territory, just focusing on things that could respectively be easily changed if they put their mind and money to it. So uh, you think that uh, a lot uh, change that's being made uh, by politicians needs to be a lot bigger, but uh, how would you respond to people who would say that that isn't feasible or isn't uh, uh, isn't possible or worth the money uh, or something like that? Well, I understand that most people, and even I, used to think that the government didn't have enough money to put... Uh, like to put it into all these different things, they need to provide money for jobs and um, businesses. But the truth is they have a lot of money that they're putting into things that don't necessarily matter, like oil reserves, uh, mass corporations, um, a bunch of things that, I mean, I can't think of right now because I'm no politician, but... I don't know. I feel that they definitely need to educate themselves on the government and how they have the power to change and they're just not using it. Do you think there's a way, uh, do you think that uh, by by voting or by uh, protesting or uh, how do we, how do we, um, as citizens who might not be in politics, uh, help create change that is political? I feel that as we can't vote, most uh, people who I find are in this environmental activism, they, they can't vote because they're not old enough. The best option we have is protesting and petitions because petitions, uh, though it might start out small, it can certainly move up higher and higher in rank and eventually meet politicians who just might take the time to look at them and think, wow, all these citizens want this. This is what the people want. Do you think people uh, our age or people who are uh, some of the younger people who are engaging with uh, politics, do you think they should be allowed to vote? I believe... That, yeah, I feel like children um, our age have the right mindset to vote because we've been exposed to multiple perspectives and problems, issues in the world, and we should be able to have our own opinion and make up our own mind logically and vote. I've seen a lot of... Uh people talking about how uh, voting doesn't really matter or uh, all parties are the same or uh, things like that. And uh, how, would you, how would you respond to ideas and comments like that? Well, one person choosing not to vote, it won't make the biggest difference. But when thousands, millions of people are saying, well, my vote won't matter, I'm only one person, it certainly adds up, and we have tons of people that 
could be putting their good ideas and opinions to use but choose not to because they feel that they're insignificant and if they really looked at the data and statistics of how different um like who would be elected how different that would be if other people voted then i feel they'd be more inclined to take action and actually vote would you say that um uh, we as citizens would have uh, a moral obligation uh, to interact with uh, politics and uh, educate ourselves about climate change? Um, yes, I, I would say that as bad as the world has gotten, I think that we have a moral obligation to take the next step in... Um, advocating and performing activism because a lot of people who choose not to participate in activism are people who aren't being oppressed and they certainly have a moral obligation to uh, make change or try to make change even if they aren't the ones directly affected. Protests are uh, recently a lot harder to uh, organize and attend. So how would you say uh, COVID has affected your ac activism? Has it made things easier or more difficult? Uh, I think it's both slowed it down and helped it because I haven't been doing any uh, protesting in town because of COVID and a lot of businesses closed earlier and there's just not as much foot traffic that would see it and be affected by it. But on social media, I've been introduced to so many different uh, problems and causes to fight for, not just in Canada, in the US, but all over the world, things that I've never even heard of. So I feel like it's educated me a lot, even if it slowed down actual change making. Right. Are there are there any um, important sort of issues or aspects of uh, of climate change or what you're fighting for that you think it's important that everyone learn about and uh, acquaint themselves with? I feel like everyone should know that it's just not something we're fighting for uh, and trying to prevent something that's hundreds of years to come. It's very very soon within a decade and some studies are saying even sooner than that it's literally uh, a countdown to a point of no return and i don't like putting panic into people but i feel like more people should realize how serious this is has has inciting panic been a, an issue that you've um that you've struggled with uh during your while you were doing your activism yes i feel like uh some people who i've done activism with they they feel like instilling panic is a good thing to do but i find it automatically causes people to uh put their walls up and just be in complete denial that no, I'm totally fine, this this isn't happening, and that's that's not a result that we want. What what kind of approach to activism would you say doesn't cause panic or might be a bit more effective in that respect? Sit down protests at uh, city halls with uh, signs that don't say like we have we have 10 years to live or something like that because that's that's ridiculous uh you're just spreading panic for no reason but uh maybe board boards with uh information on it and someone who's holding the board should be able to talk about what they're fighting for because i find a lot of people that join in protests are just there for the fun and for um the videos of themselves and that kind of thing and that's very hard to work with. Thank you very much for uh, doing this interview. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was my conversation with student activist Alexis Benz. 
Please take a moment to write and review Writers Festival Radio, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. We can't do it without you. Thank you for joining us today. We're back with another Republic of Childhood edition of the podcast on Tuesday, December 1st, The Challenges Facing Canada in Protecting the Well-Being of Children, featuring Kim Hellemans and Jane Bertrand. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kara Harris is the festival's program director. Neil Wilson and Taya Yateman are my fellow co-founders of the Republic of Childhood, and I'm Aiden Wilson. Thank you all for listening today.